Ken Meliner, who is a regional leader for us for many years, and many of you have gotten to know the Meliners, Ken and Beth. Uh, they became kind of extended pastoral team here and uh, would visit a couple times a year. So Jared's their son. Jared is the senior pastor at Covenant Fellowship Church in the Philadelphia area. So that's the church that I came from. Jared was my senior pastor for a season. Uh, Jared became a senior pastor. I wanted to become a senior pastor. Uh, Jared has six kids. I wanted to have six kids. Uh, and so whatever Jared does, I try to do. I'm just not as good as him at anything. And so I just keep trying and I follow. Um uh, Jared serves not only as senior pastor at Covenant Fellowship Church, but he also serves uh, on the national leadership team of Sovereign Grace Churches, and so he's uh, part of the national leadership in our denomination, uh, one of the young men who have uh, uh, raised up as kind of generational change is happening in Sovereign Grace, and so uh, he's in town to uh, lead, help lead parts of our Regional Assembly of Elders the next couple of days, and, uh, and agreed to come early to preach to you guys. And so I'm so thankful for that. Let me just say this about Jared. Um, two, th three things I'm particularly grateful for about Jared uh, coming here to preach to you today. One is uh, I can't preach this morning, as you can tell from my voice. And so God in his providence <laughs> provided a preacher for us. Praise the Lord. He is good to provide. Uh, second is... Um, I benefit personally uh, and through our denomination, denomination so much from Jared's leadership. Uh, he is a man that I, I want to follow. There are men put in positions of leadership, men that serve needs, and I'm grateful for those guys. Uh, but then there are also just naturally gifted leaders who God gives to his church as gifts. And uh, Jared is one of those men who I I'm you know lead the charge, brother, and I'm happy to follow you. Uh, and so I love love Jared, and, and then this gets to the root of why I'm grateful he's here. Um, you can tell a lot about the friends in your life uh, by the people you can laugh the hardest with. <laughs> and Jared is a guy that not just makes me, there are people that make me laugh, but then there are people that I just freely laugh with because I enjoy life with them. And Jared is probably the pastor in Sovereign Grace that I laugh the most freely with. We get together and we just have fun uh, as we try to fix all the problems in the world. Exactly. And so uh, we have the most fun doing it, I think. And so none of our solutions are very good, but we have a lot of fun and we press into the Lord for it. And so uh, I'm so glad to have Jared, uh, who is my leader and my friend, come and preach to the church and the people that I love. And so... Let's welcome Jared up to preach God's word oh, to us. Thank you, brother. Thank you. I love you so much, man. In Sovereign Grace Churches, we are firm believers in the value of partnership. And um, whenever I'm here with you and whenever I get time with Jace, it's a reminder of the incredible blessing of churches partnering together. There are a lot of individual Christians who think that they can make it on their own in the Christian life and don't think that they need the church, and that's a mistake. And in the same way, there are a lot of churches that think that they can make it on their own and don't need other churches to be partnered together in fellowship, in mission, in governance. We deeply believe in churches partnering together. And it's one of the things that I love about this church in particular. Uh, Covenant of Grace is known among the leadership team and among many others throughout Sovereign Grace as a church that abounds in the grace of partnership. And I sought 
to communicate to the pastors yesterday as I met with them and want to communicate to you as well my gratitude to God that you are a church that looks beyond your own needs. Uh, I am thrilled that God has raised up my dear brother Jace to be uh, a regional leader uh, and I am so grateful for this team and this church for releasing him to serve in that way as he's uh, really been raised up as a leader of other leaders and is serving other churches. And I thank God as well that, uh, that Bert is serving in Brazil the way that he is. And so we as a leadership team look at the sacrifices that you are making as a church, uh, all of your love, all of your generosity, all of your prayers, and we, we thank God um, for you. I was able to spend time with, with Jace and the pastors last night and just had such a blast. My heart is so refreshed uh, to be among dear brothers uh, and friends and co-workers in the gospel. One of the things that I love about this team and about this church is that there is such a wonderful culture of, um, of joy and of humility and a unity that God has worked uh, into this church. And so to hear updates of all that God is doing, my heart is filled with thankfulness to God for the many evidences of his grace at work uh, in your life. I'm also thrilled that Merrick has joined the team. I was able to meet Merrick and got to know him when he was at the pastor's college. I taught him for a few days there, which means that I get to take credit for any ways that God is using him uh, in life and ministry. He's just applying all that I taught him uh, so well. I thank God for you, brother. I'd like to invite you to please turn to Hebrews chapter one. I thank God that in the task of preaching, I never need to choose between, on the one hand, sermons that make a practical difference in our lives and are highly useful for daily living, on the one hand, and on the other hand, sermons that focus our attention on Jesus. I don't need to choose between those two because Knowing Christ is the most practical and life-changing knowledge in all the world. And it's as we consider Christ and his glory that we are changed from one degree of glory to another. We have the joy of considering this glorious Savior today in the opening four verses of Hebrews chapter 1. Our sermon title is Christ our Prophet. Christ our Prophet. This is God's holy and authoritative word. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. May God bless the preaching 
of his word. It was in the 1930s and 1940s that the English author J.R.R. Tolkien wrote his epic fantasy novel set in Middle-earth, The Lord of the Rings. I learned after the first service that this is not the first time The Lord of the Rings has been mentioned from this pulpit. It was not planned. I had no idea, but we really are similar. We really are similar, brother. (laughs) When it was first published, you may not know, some critics didn't know what to make of it since long fantasy novels for adult readers really wasn't a thing uh, at that time at that time. In 1961, one critic wrote in the London Observer and predicted that the popularity of these, quote, dull, ill-witted, childish books would soon fade into a merciful oblivion. (laughs) I will say that take has not aged well. (laughs) Some of you will say it's heresy, indeed. That take has not aged well. The Lord of the Rings trilogy is estimated to have sold over 150 million copies, making it one of the most successful works of literature of all time. What many of those readers, however, don't know is the way that the story really beautifully and powerfully reveals the threefold offices of Christ as prophet, priest, and king. Now, Tolkien said he does not like allegory, but also said his work is filled with Christian imagery and meaning. Philip Ryken wrote a delightful little book called The Messiah Comes to Middle-Earth, Images of Christ's Threefold Office in the Lord of the Rings. And what he does in that book is explains that all three of the main protagonists or heroes in the Lord of the Rings are Christ figures, and each one of them uh, reveals Uh, something distinct about the offices and the character of Christ. Gandalf, the prophet, who just like the prophet Moses and the prophet Elisha uses his staff to perform signs and wonders. He's a wise man who sees the future. He speaks the truth. Frodo as priest and Aragorn as king. All three of them experience different forms of death and resurrection. All three are saviors who through their self-sacrifice help save Middle-earth from the evil Sauron. Uh, Barry Gordon in the 1960s said this. He said, Middle-earth is saved through the priestly self-sacrifice of the hobbit, Frodo, through the wisdom and guidance of Gandalf, the wizard, and through the mastery of Aragorn, the heir of kings. Now, you may or may not be a fan of The Lord of the Rings. If you're not a fan, it's actually the wrong church for you uh, because you apparently hear so much of it from this pulpit. But each one of us, regardless of our familiarity with Tolkien's work, each one of us needs to grow in our knowledge of Jesus Christ. And one of the best ways to do this is to understand the offices of Christ as taught in Holy Scripture. Throughout the Old Testament, there were many prophets, there were many priests, there were many kings. Each office had a distinct function that meets a very real need in our lives, a very real need in the lives of the people of God, our need for guidance, our need for righteousness, our need for protection. And each office existed to point to a distinct aspect of the person and work of Christ, the Savior who was to come. The author of Hebrews is concerned with our knowledge of Christ. 
Uh, He desires us to deepen our understanding of who Christ is, and that is my concern and desire today as well. I remember D.A. Carson saying that after decades of teaching, if there's one thing he has learned, it's this, that students don't learn everything he teaches them. What they learn is what he's most excited about. And he goes on to say that what the church needs to be excited about is the gospel. What the church needs to be excited about is Jesus Christ. This is how we pass on our heritage. It does not work to assume the gospel and to make some other issue the thing that really captures your heart. Make that mistake and the following generation will lose the gospel altogether. Uh, This morning, God is recentering Christ in our affections. Not some other cause or issue, not this or that concern. Christ himself must be the center. Every Christian church exists for the purpose of treasuring the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't need more churches full of Christians who are grumbling their way through life and are mad at the world. We have enough of those. What we need are churches full of Christians who are marveling at the glory and goodness of Christ himself. And my concern is that that too many believers have a knowledge of Christ that is relatively shallow and superficial. We know enough to be saved, but not enough to be fully satisfied in him. And this is why we are commanded in 2 Peter 3.18, this command comes from God to every one of us, grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I see obedience to that command as one of the greatest needs of the church of Christ in our day. And obedience to that one command, growing in the knowledge of Christ, makes all the difference in the Christian life. It's as we deepen our knowledge of Christ, it's as we expand our knowledge of Christ that we experience greater joy and greater contentment, greater peace in Christ. It's it's then that our lives are stabilized. The author of Hebrews in chapter 12 puts it in terms of looking to Jesus and that as we look to Jesus and as we consider him, that we do not grow weary and faint-hearted. I wonder if there are any who find themselves weary and faint-hearted today. Well, God would have you look to Jesus and consider him and to grow even today in our knowledge of Christ so that as we do so, we might experience more fully the joy of knowing him, the joy of knowing his great love, the joy of knowing all that this glorious Savior has accomplished for us. And one of the best ways to grow in our knowledge of Christ is to know him in his offices. Uh, This great treatment of the offices of Christ that is so often neglected in our day. Stephen Wellam says this, the threefold office of Christ shows us the comprehensive nature of both sin's corruption and Christ's salvation. So sin has has ruined our knowledge of God. That means we need a prophet. Sin has corrupted the righteousness of our desires and our deeds. That means we need a priest. And sin has 
ruined our submission and obedience to the Lord, not only in our lives, but in all of the world, in all of its brokenness. And therefore, we need a king. We need a prophet, we need a priest, we need a king. And praise God, we also see in these offices not only the comprehensive devastation of sin in our lives, we also see the fullness and the glory of salvation. And that is because in Christ, we have a truthful prophet to deal with our ignorance. And in Christ, we have a sacrificial priest to deal with our sin through his substitutionary death. And in Christ, we have a powerful king to deal with all of our enemies. Prophet, priest, and king. Thomas Schreiner says, we see in the introduction of Hebrews that Jesus is the prophet, priest, and king. He is the prophet for God's final word is spoken by him and in him. He is the priest by whom final cleansing of sins is accomplished. He is the king who reigns at God's right hand. Now today, rather than expositing these glorious four verses in their entirety, we want to consider what it means that Christ, the true and better prophet, has come. We want to consider Christ as our great prophet. The first point to consider is that God is a speaking God. That phrase, God has spoken, is a reminder that God communicates with those he has made. He has made himself plainly known in history. God is there and he is not silent. God has spoken, not just on occasion according to verse 1, but many times and in many ways. He authoritatively spoke and made himself known for us in God's word. He spoke by the prophets. So through all of the Old Testament prophets, from Moses to Malachi, God was speaking. That is, God was authoritatively making himself known and revealing his will. What was the role of a prophet? Uh, you, You read the prophets, and I encourage you to do so in your own Bible reading. If you tend to only read the New Testament or the Psalms, make time for the prophets. Include that in your Bible reading. What, was the, what were the prophets doing? Well, they weren't just agitators or social reformers. Uh, they were messengers and representatives of God. Uh, the prophets saw things that others did not see, and they represented God to his people by speaking the authoritative word of God. They represented God in their words, and with their entire being, in fact, with their, with their behavior and in symbolic acts. You read the prophets and you notice they were at times odd. Uh, Jeremiah smashed a clay jar. He also wore a large yoke at one point. Ezekiel uh, shaved his head and his beard and then one third of it he burns, one third of it he strikes with the sword, one third he scatters to the wind. Hosea you may remember, was called to marry unfaithful Gomer, the prostitute. In all of these things, God made clear the message he was speaking. He was communicating to his people plainly, and he not only did so through these behaviors, but then made clear, this 
is what I am saying. Thus says the Lord is the message that the prophets brought. And do you know, here's a question, do you know how people responded to the prophets? Oh, thank you, Mr. Prophet, for bringing us the truth that we so desperately need. No, not at all. They, they hated the prophets. They railed against the prophets. And, and that is because the prophets were willing to declare unpopular truths. They, were, they went against popular opinions of the day. Standing on the truth. They said that people need to change the way that they are living. That people need to believe the truth of God and live for God alone. Not for themselves, but for God. That people need to escape the divine judgment that we all deserve for our sin. And that message was no more popular then than it is today. And so the prophets were rejected. The prophet Jeremiah was imprisoned. The prophet Zechariah was killed. God is a speaking God, but this leads to our second point. We are all truth-denying people. We are all, every one of us, truth-denying people. And what I mean by that is that this is our natural condition, is to deny the truth. Even though what can be known about God is very plain, through the world he has made, through the prophets he has sent, through the word he has spoken. Romans 1 says that we all suppress the truth and exchange the truth of God for a lie. We live for ourselves. We reject the truth of God. And friends, that is exactly what people are doing in the world today. We have made ourselves gods. We say that we determine reality. We live how we want to live. You do you. We say that whatever you think is true for you. We have this idea that has been introduced, a sort of new tolerance. That means we must never suggest that anyone else is wrong in their beliefs. All of this is a denial and a rejection of the God who has made himself known, who has plainly revealed himself. And the result is that the whole world today, if you want to understand what's going on in the world, the whole world is railing against the truth of God by refusing to believe and live according to his word. We have denied and rejected the truth. We have gone our own way. The issue is not that God has not made himself known. You mean, oh, I wish God would reveal himself to me. He has. He's made himself known, but each one of us in the face of that truth turned and went our own way. I was raised in a very strong, gospel-centered, loving Christian home. Some of you know my parents, Ken and Beth Melliner. And um, despite that upbringing, I marvel at what I, I, what I squandered. Uh, because I, despite being raised in the ways of the Lord as a teenager, turned my back on all of it, and for years lived in self-absorption and folly. I wanted nothing to do with God. I wanted nothing to do with the church. Told my parents I didn't ever want to go to church. Didn't like the music. Didn't like the people. Didn't like anything about it. When they made me go to church, I would go and I would just put my head down and sleep through the entire service, including my dad's sermon. It was a time of great stubbornness for me. We would go on family vacation. You wouldn't believe if I told you some of the folly in my life as a 14-year-old. We would go on family vacations and family reunions, and I would stay in the van the entire time. 
the family van. So we would go, you know, the dead of winter, holidays, visiting extended family, eight hours, and I would just stay out in the, in the van. And I remember my Nana and Pop-Up coming out, oh, we'd love to have you come inside, and I would ignore them. Um, there was such great folly and such great self-absorption. It's interesting, I would have said that, that God and I are okay because I created in my mind a God who doesn't care about the details of our lives. And it turned out that everything in my life was just a detail that God cares nothing about. So I created an ability to live however I want to live and do whatever I want to do and reject the God of my own making by denying the authority of the true and living God and the claim that he makes on my life. That's what every one of us have naturally done. I marvel at the grace of God that broke into my life and changed me, but it's our need for a prophet that speaks to this very reality. It speaks to the ignorance, the folly, the blindness of humanity. We, we need a prophet. We need a prophet because the whole world is lost in darkness and blindness. Now this doesn't mean, so that there's no misunderstanding, this does not mean that godless people are unintelligent in all things. There are many unbelievers who are brilliant and knowledgeable, far more knowledgeable than I am about many things. What was that, uh, the game show, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? I'll save you, you know, the question, I am not smarter than a fifth grader. The kids don't come to me for help with their homework. They go to their mom because she's able to help them, whereas I am useless. It doesn't mean that an unbelieving world doesn't have any legitimate knowledge, but when it comes to knowing the things of God, when it comes to the knowledge of God and His salvation and the weight of eternity, the important things, the reason we're here, we are all naturally in darkness. And this is why we need a prophet. And this is why God himself has taken initiative toward us and has opened our blind eyes. And this is why God in his great kindness has spoken a final word at so great a cost to himself. He has spoken a word greater than any word that had ever been spoken before and has made himself known to all the world. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, there was a great diversity of authoritative revelation in those days. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Verse 2, but in these last days, he has spoken to us. How? By his son. God authoritatively spoke first by the prophets and finally, by his son. Which leads to the third and last point. Christ is the final prophet. The speaking of God, the authoritative self-revelation of God throughout history by which he progressively reveals himself and his plans for the world, that speaking culminates in these last days in his son, and that authoritative revelation is complete in his son. A prophet has come. The eternal son of God, in his great love for sinners, came into the world to make the father known. 
The creator of all things came as creature so that a world of truth deniers like you and me would come to know the true and living God. Jesus is, we are told, the radiance of the glory of God. Verse 3. That means Jesus came to reveal the Father's glory. Study this one as He is revealed in Scripture and you see God revealed. You see who God is. In His birth, He reveals that God loves sinners and takes initiative toward us. He is the God who pursues. He is the God who goes after In his life, he reveals the holiness, the justice, the wisdom, the mercy of God. In all of the teaching of Jesus, all of his parables in which he's functioning as a prophet, he is declaring the truth. And then perhaps most gloriously, his seven sayings on the cross reveal the truth about his identity and mission. When he said, Father, forgive them, He revealed the heart of God to cleanse us. He revealed the heart of God to forgive us of all of our sin. When he said, today you will be with me in paradise, he revealed the mercy of God that gives us a future, that gives us a hope, the hope of a paradise reigning with God forever. When he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was revealing the justice of a holy God who must punish sin. A holy God who crushed His Son in our place and for our sins. And when He said, it is finished, He declared the victory of God, the triumph of God, a victory over sin, a victory over Satan, a victory over death. God has spoken by His Son. Here's what we must understand. If you want to know the truth, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. If you want to know why God created you, if you're wondering what is the the purpose of life, who am I, what's the reason that I'm here, what's the goal of life, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. If you want to know if God really loves you, if you want to know if God really cares about you, if you've had an especially difficult life and you are wondering how a good God could allow such suffering, and if you wonder, what is God's heart toward me? What is God's posture toward me? Does God love me? Does God like me? Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. It's, it's revealed there. It's made known there. If you want to know who God is, look to Jesus. This eternal God has spoken and has made himself known in Christ. Jesus not only teaches the word of God as the prophets did, he himself is the word of God. The word became flesh to be the final authoritative prophet that we might come to a true knowledge of God. No one has ever seen God, but the Son of God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. John chapter 1. And do you remember what Jesus said to Philip, His disciple in John 14? Jesus says, I am the truth, 
By the way, what other religious leader ever spoke that way? What is the truth? I am. I am the truth, he says. And Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. And Jesus said, still you don't know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. God has spoken by his Son. In speaking of this office of Christ as prophet, Mark Jones says this, Christ in his office of prophet imparts all true knowledge of God and enables us to receive it. So that's what Christ is doing as prophet. He imparts all true knowledge of God and he works in our hearts and minds, enabling us, empowering us to receive this truth. If you are a skeptic when it comes to Christianity, or if you uh, are inclined to, to doubt that we can ever be sure about spiritual beliefs in general, you might say, how can we really know what God is like? I want to encourage you, why not apply uh, your intellect and your reason that God has given you, that's the reason you're asking these questions, why not apply that intellect and your reason to the question of the identity of Jesus? Have you, have you done that? Study his life, study his teaching with an open mind. You will discover it is a reasonable faith. Uh, ask God to give you a true knowledge of himself. If you are a Christian who is inclined to doubts, uh, to, to wondering if what you say you know is true really is true, and doubting is perhaps a constant companion, please know that you are not alone. And I encourage you to remember that Jesus Christ himself is our teacher and prophet. What that means is that we're not following our own ideas. We're not following man-made opinions. We're following a person. And because we have gone all in on Christ, because we have placed our faith in Christ, the only way for our faith to be misguided, the only way for our faith to be mistaken is for Christ himself, for Jesus of Nazareth, to be misguided and mistaken. And I don't have the faith, I don't have the nerve to dismiss and to disparage the most influential prophet and teacher the world has ever known. Our faith is secure because it rests in him. And even when we doubt, we can know that the certainty of the truth is unchanging. He is who he says he is. Christ is a prophet who speaks to every circumstance and condition we face. To the wayward who are not following and obeying God's word with your life, he says, my commands are for your good. He says, build your life on the rock by hearing and doing my words. He teaches us, he calls us to obedience. To those who are weak and weary, uh, I tell you, you will not find a more tender teacher and a more patient prophet than the Lord Jesus Christ. He teaches us so tenderly. There's a beautiful verse in Isaiah 50, verse four, one of the servant songs, it's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the voice of the servant and prophet speaking who would come. And Jesus says in that verse, Isaiah 50 verse 4, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught 
that I might know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Let all who are weary remember, you have a teacher in the Lord who is a good and faithful shepherd who specializes in sustaining the weary with a word. Other friends may fail you. Pastors and preachers may at times not bring the message that resonates with your soul. The Lord Jesus Christ will never fail you. And when he speaks, he speaks tenderly and he speaks truthfully and he edifies our souls like no other. He sustains with a word him who is weary. It's not just that Christ, this is important to understand, it's not just that Christ was a prophet uh, who, who taught during his earthly ministry. Christ continues his prophetic ministry today as he teaches us through his word the scriptures. What does it mean to be a church today that embraces Christ as prophet? That, a, a church that is following Christ in his prophetic office. The main thing it means is that we hold fast to this inspired and inerrant word. It means that we're a people of the truth where so many are raising questions about the inerrancy and the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. We build our lives upon this book. Where else can we go but to the truth of God? And it means that we are a people defined by the truth. I'm thrilled that you guys have started a series on the sovereign grace statement of faith because this is what we're all about. And there may be some areas in the Christian life that there are some disagreements. I sometimes have those disagreements with others and I come back to all that's in our statement of faith and say praise God for all that we have in common because we agree on the most important things. And we're a church that is built on these fundamental truths, the truths of who God is, the truths of what God has done for us in Christ, the riches of salvation. To be to be. A church that follows Christ in his prophetic office, let me say this, means that we stand firm upon the truth even when it's unpopular. And however unpopular and unfashionable the truth of God becomes, we can't dismiss it just because we don't like it. And we can't dismiss it just because we live in a world that rejects certain parts of the truth. To follow Christ as prophet means we say, we embrace the whole of the truth that God has taught in his word. It also means this, that we're pressing on to grow in our knowledge of the truth. If Christ in his office of prophet is imparting the true knowledge of God and if he's enabling us to receive it, we say we want to press on deeper into a knowledge of the truth. This is why we read the Bible during the week. This is why we need teaching, not only on Sunday mornings, but other times. We want to be a doctrinally defined church. I wonder, you know, what do you look for in a church? My, my greatest fear is that too many Christians look for a particular experience or a particular personality in gifting or uh, particular aesthetics or whatever the case may be and are willing to marginalize the priority of truth. Care about sound doctrine. I know you do. Care about sound doctrine. Have, have theology be something that's really, really important in the church that you're going to be a part of and then seek to grow in that knowledge of truth and and eagerly sit under the preaching of God's word eager to be instructed in Christian doctrine and Christian living be a people of the truth and then reach out to others with that truth 
that God has graciously revealed to us. This is what it means to follow Christ as prophet. I heard a, uh, a story a preacher once shared of a, a father and a son who were going into a village uh, and there was a blacksmith in the village who was hammering away on an anvil and the boy was mesmerized by this because it let out such a loud bang every time the hammer hit and he's staring and he looks to his dad and he asks him, uh, is that man going to break that anvil? And his dad smiles and looks back to him and says, that anvil has worn out many hammers. And then the, the preacher who shared, it was John Piper sharing this story. He said at that point, the Bible is an anvil that has worn out a thousand hammers. The Bible is an anvil that has worn out a thousand hammers. 15 years ago when I was ordained, my wife got me a gift. It's a large frame, it's in my office. And there's a picture of an anvil and it says that very phrase. The Bible is an anvil that has worn out a thousand hammers and it says, may your life be spent mining and proclaiming the riches of God's word. The reality is that over history and throughout the centuries, there are many hammers that have been raised up against the authority of God's word. And yet the word of God has triumphed over them all. The truth has prevailed. God has promised this will be the case because Christ is our prophet. In the past, God spoke in many ways through the prophets, but now he has spoken through his son. Jesus Christ came into the world as the best and final word of God, and there is no greater word that can come than the word that has been spoken in the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Lord, praise God, the Lord has triumphed over our truth-denying hearts and has triumphed over every lie and has brought us to a knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need a prophetic, Gandalf-like word of truth, a priestly, Frodo-like self-sacrifice for sinners, and a kingly Aragorn-like victor over our enemies. A prophet, priest, and king has come, and Christ has met all of our greatest needs. There may be some needs that you're aware of that you feel, oh, I wish I had this, I wish I had that in life. Friends, I would remind you today that in Christ, all our greatest needs are met. Stephen Wellam says this, what a glorious savior he is. And don't we know it to be true in our hearts today? He is a glorious savior. Truly in Christ, Wellam says, in Christ alone, all our needs are met perfectly and completely. Our need for truth is found in him as the final prophet and revelation of God. Our need for a righteous standing before God is achieved by him as our priestly representative, substitute, and new covenant head. Our need to have our rebel hearts subdued, our enemies defeated, and the new creation inaugurated and ultimately consummated is accomplished by him alone as our conquering king. Christ's threefold office brings into focus the glory of his person and saving work. What a glorious savior he is. 
We will never tire of praising this glorious one. He meets our need for truth. He brings us holiness and righteousness before God. He subdues our rebel hearts. He defeats our enemies. He makes his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. What a glorious Savior he is. And may it be, may it be that Covenant of Grace Church, that this is always the center of your passion and that you spend your days for years, for decades, Lord willing, for generations to come, experiencing the joy of building your lives on Christ, who is our prophet, priest, and king. May we always press on to grow in our knowledge of him, and as a result, may we even today trust in him, rejoice in him, and hope in him fully, knowing that our king is coming again. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, what a glorious salvation you have given us, and what a glorious Savior. Father, we thank you for not leaving us in the darkness, but for coming after us, for making yourself known, for being a self-revealing God. Lord, for any here who are rejecting your self-revelation, we ask that your truth would powerfully break into their hearts and that eyes would be opened just as you have for so many of us. For each of us, Lord, may we be a people of the truth who hold fast to your truth. Uh, may this church be a, a pillar of the truth that stands firm upon your word and continues to go deeper and deeper into a knowledge of who you are and the riches of your grace and the love that you have for us in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your word, for making yourself known, for the riches of your truth. Continue to shape us and mold us, to sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. We hope and we trust in you alone. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.